This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Thanks, Damien. For those of you new to New City and snuck in a little late, again, my name is Rusin. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's my pleasure to be preaching for you this morning. As Ted already alluded to earlier today, uh, on May 12th, he started a series on seeing and displaying Jesus. Although this sermon is not a part of that series, it's definitely related to that series, if not inspired by that series. Well, I found that the seeing-displaying paradigm that's been constructed for New City has been extremely helpful to organizing my own understanding of the Christian life and giving me rails to run on to enjoy all that I can with Jesus. But not only has it been helpful in organizing my own Christian life, it's been a real wonderful tool in helping me to help leaders to organize their Christian life and giving them rails to run on and enjoy the breath and the width of love, God's love for them. Think about that. If, if we're going to see Jesus and all his glory and his grace and mercy and, be, and display him to the world, if we're going to behold Jesus and his kindness and faithfulness and love to us and his glory and become more like him, if we're going to revel in his glory and love and grace and reveal it to the watching world, if we're going to enjoy him in his marvelous grace and join him in the advancement of his kingdom, then one thing we have to talk about this interdependent community. I would dare say interdependent community is indispensable. It's vital to us seeing and displaying Jesus. Uh, one author who shaped my understanding of renewal, actually my entire tradition on renewal in the Christian life, is a guy named Richard Loveless, and he had this to say. Um, among the most vital means of grace are other Christians. Neither the Bible nor the sacraments will leave the shelf or the sanctuary to rescue a Christian who is too discouraged or backslidden to pray or worship. But a concerned brother will do this again and again. That preaches, doesn't it? I mean, when you think about your own Christian life, if, you, if there's any extended period of time where you've enjoyed walking with Jesus, you can look back over that time, and as you dissect it, as you look at it through a microscope, you're like, oh my gosh, it was all people. God, by his grace and Holy Spirit, brought other believers in my life during that time period to love me, to encourage me, to chase me down. For example, as much as you may have enjoyed or not enjoyed the Lord's Supper this past Sunday, you know, the sacraments didn't go home with you. And then when you were feeling backslidden or just withdrawn from Jesus, it's not like the communion bread held you down while the wine was pouring itself into your mouth to get a little more Jesus in you. Although that'd be pretty awesome. It, it's not like when you skip CVR possibly this week, you know, it's not like in Harry Potter style, books start flying around the room, and the Bible knocked you over the head and made you sit down and start reading itself to you. But gosh, we can all think of times where our friends in our community have chased us down and hugged us. And when we didn't want to pray, held our hands and prayed with us. And when we were wandering from the gospel, preached the gospel to us and brought us back to the place where we were resting in the love and grace of God. 
So what is interdependent community? Interdependent community, in short, is reciprocal, mutually beneficial, mutually sacrificial relationships. Again, it's reciprocal, mutually beneficial, mutually sacrificial relationships. In your first introduction to this topic of interdependent community, uh, we looked at Galatians 6.2, and Ted talked to us about burden bearing and how uh, interdependent community is reciprocal burden bearing. And then he contrasted, and I want to remind us of that, he contrasted from independence, which for us is to live as though we've never been assigned a burden to carry, where God actually wants me to help you or you to help me. And then Ted uh, defined or contrasted interdependent community from codependence, which is to think that individuals don't have a load that only they can carry or should carry. But that interdependence is personal responsibility and dependent humility and community at the same time. You know, there's so many one another passages that we could cover when talking about interdependent community. Uh, when you look at the Bible, there's 59 commands to love one another. And so we're supposed to love one another, teach one another, instruct one another, admonish one another, forgive one another, live in harmony with one another, agree with one another, be compassionate to one another. The list goes on and on. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 23-25, because the author of Hebrews highlights seminal aspects of interdependent community. So briefly this morning we're going to look at the purposes of interdependent community, the particulars of interdependent community, and the power for interdependent community. So first, the purpose of interdependent community. If you look at verse 24 in your worship folder, you'll quickly see this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. See, the purpose of all our one another, when you look at the scriptures, the purpose of all our beautiful interdependent community is love and good works. So let's break down those two words. Love, the word here is agape, and it's clearly defined by God and the cross. I love how John defines it for us so succinctly. Look at 1 John 4, 10 and 11. It'll be on the screen above me. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now don't let that big word propitiation scare you. It's actually a beautiful word when you begin to understand it. Uh, think about how beautiful, one-sided, lavish, gracious, and merciful the love of God is for us. God looking upon us, not wanting us to be uh, stuck in our bondage to sin and death, knowing that we couldn't make up for the sin we brought into the world, knowing that we can't make up for the harm we bring to others, knowing that we can't make up for the shame that we create for ourselves, sent Jesus for us. Jesus left the glory of his heavenly road at home, and he came to be in earth and, and take on skin like us. But unlike us, he enjoyed his Father in heaven, lived for his glory and communed with him perfectly, and obeyed the law in its entirety. And then on the cross, he did something mysterious, magical, and overwhelmingly sacrificial for us. In the cross, he took on our identity. He took on our sin. He took on our shame. He took on every sin, past, present, and future, and he wore it. And there, the wrath of God was poured out on him. And what propitiation is, is he satisfied that wrath. He absorbed every bit of it, willingly, lovingly for every one of us. So that we would be given his righteousness, his aroma, his approval. The satisfaction that the Father has in him would be given to us. And what John helps us to see is that's love. 
(laughs) that the father would send the son willingly and curse him and pour wrath on him and kill him and then raise him in the dead to secure a loving relationship with you, to secure eternity with you, to secure being able to bestow his love and grace in endless ways for the rest of eternity for you. And so this is what the author of Hebrews calls us to, to love and good works. But good works, it's a general term. It's something so beautiful, so practical, that its goodness cannot be denied. Something so loving, so, something so beautiful and practical that its goodness cannot be denied. I'm going to tell you a little simple story that I think illustrates this really well. Back in 2003, I had the opportunity to start a church in Chapel Hill. And like most church planners in the early days, I didn't have like an errand or an awesome worship team and all these other cool people doing different things. And so on my way to worship, we worshiped in the evenings. I realized, oh, rats, I didn't buy the communion wine and bread yet. So I went by a local grocery store, and I went in there, and I bought the loaf of bread, and I got some wine, and I was on my way out. And by the way, it was 20 degrees outside. It's North Carolina. It was February, and the wind chill is about 15 degrees. It was probably the coldest day I could ever remember. So on my way out, I caught eyes with the homeless guy I'd gotten to know. But briefly, his name was Gary. He was wearing a thin army green jacket, and he was wearing a toboggan, and he was shivering to the bones, and he looked miserable. And Gary saw me, he said, hey, Pastor Sin. And I was like, what did I tell you about calling me Pastor Sin? My name is Rue. He's like, hey, Rue, man, I'm really cold. I'm kind of hungry. I'm not in a good place. Do you think you can get me something to eat? Now, at this point, I was like, there's no way I could go preach a sermon and not feed a homeless guy. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, I was like, this is just not going to work for me. So I went right back inside and, and I went to the deli section and I saw that there was like fresh hot fried chicken. I was like, all right, this guy's cold. He needs some chicken. I'm going to grab some chicken for him. So I went and bought an eight piece set and the lady said, you want four biscuits? Absolutely. Let's do this right. So I packaged it all up, went, swiped my debit card, went right back to Gary and I gave it to him. So here you go, Gary. Lord be with you. And then I was walking to my car, and then I saw Gary just dart right across the face of the grocery store and turn the corner. And immediately my heart got incredulous. I was like, oh, that guy, he took advantage of me. Something wrong's going on here. So even though my car was literally in front of the grocery store, I pretended it was in the northeast corner of the parking lot. So I could just kind of sort of vaguely walk over there and check out what's going on. And, you know, my heart was in a bad place. I was already villainizing, demonizing poor Gary. And then when I turned the corner, what saw me blew me away. I saw Gary messing with something, and I suddenly realized there was a man in that 15-degree chill weather just shivering on the ground, shivering so bad he was just laying, kind of crouched on the corner on the ground, covered with blankets and cardboard to keep him warm. And Gary propped him up and kind of messed with him to free his arms so he could still have those tethered warming things on him. And then the first thing he did is he opened up the, the container and took out the biggest piece of chicken, and he handed it to his friend. And got his friend starting to eat. And then he sat down in front of his friend and then he started eating. And it blew me away. I was convicted to the core. Gary had everything I, what Gary owned in life was what he was wearing that evening. And what Gary did with the most precious thing that he had at that point was share it with his friend. What he did was so beautiful, it was so practical, it was so generous that I just reveled in its goodness. I looked at him and go, now that's a true friend. Now that's a man who's living out the gospel. Here's a man who's being beautiful and loving. Think about it. We all have neighbors on, who have a marriage on shaky grounds, and you can see those effects on their kids. We all have some coworker that's self-medicating and dealing with the stress of his or her projects. We all have a friend who's in an unhealthy relationship because of that. They're a little downcast and upset. 
Some of us are like maybe you're tutoring a child from a big brother program or something like that. And you can see the effects of their uh, parental or family or community situation. And so the question often comes upon us, how could I love them more beautifully and practically so the goodness of my love for them could not be denied? See, the purpose of interdependent community is not to have a community in itself, not to have this black hole community where it's ultimately about just being about us, hanging out and having fun. You know, those relationships often get rather boring and stale over time, don't they? Because at some point, there's only so many things you can talk about when you get together every weekend, and there's so many craft beers you can try, there's only so many recipes of guacamole that you can enjoy. But reciprocal, mutually sacrificial, beneficial relationships that stimulate you to greatest heights of love and beauty in this world, that's something worth shooting for. Think about this. You've been designed and redeemed for greatness. You've been designed and redeemed by Jesus to love extravagantly and beautifully as he has loved you. And so to what degree is this happening for you? Are you agents of love and goodness that you long to be for your family, your neighbors, your colleagues, and the residents of your city? You know, if you're like me, the answer is no. I'm nowhere near the man I want to be. I'm nowhere near the man of loving goodness and kindness where I have these amazing deeds where the goodness of the deeds just stand on their own legs. So if you're like me, you want interdependent community, but man, we got to figure out what it is if we're going to grow in this. So now we've seen the purpose of interdependent community. Let's look at the particulars of interdependent community. So what does this really look like? How do reciprocal and mutually beneficial and sacrificial relationships function? What does it tangibly mean to be both personally responsible and yet dependently humble at the same time in community? See, what I love about this passage is the author of Hebrews gets very practical really fast. And there's five perpetual tasks for interdependent community in this passage. Let's look at the first one. Uh, the first thing this author calls us to do is think. It's a corporate call to think. Look at verse 24. Let us consider. The Greek word here is kataneo. It's to discover. It's to behold. It's to think. It's to ponder. It's to contemplate. It's, it's, it's calling us to think about specific people God's put in our life and our community and think about their opportunities to love and beautiful, gracious, breathtaking deeds. It's to think about the obstacles that are in their way, deterrence that are keeping them from living extravagantly beautiful lives, and think about how you could be part of the solution. It's to take a step back and remember, you know, the Holy Spirit's already discipling this person. The Holy Spirit's already conforming this person to the image of Jesus. I just need to figure out what Jesus is doing and join what God is doing. It's contemplating what your role and responsibility is in helping this person succeed a living, a lavish life for God. Who's thinking about you? And who are you thinking about? When you think about this corporate command, it's let us consider. It's a corporate call for us to be considering each other's lives. Now, we can't do this for everyone, but we can do this for someone. So are there people in your life right now that you've experienced them thinking about you? And are there people in your community right now that have experienced you consistently thinking about them? Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't stop here. I wish he did, but he just keeps going. He first says think, and then the second thing he calls us to do is agitate one another, to agitate. Look at verse 24 again. Stir up one another. He literally says, let us consider how we might stir up one another. The Greek word here is a really strong word. 
It's to provoke. It's to stimulate. It's to incite. Now, I know right now you're going to like, so I'm supposed to be abrasive? No, no, no. This, this word is a very positive word. It's to be calm and intentional, but you're, you're moving someone to action. You're causing them to reflection. It's like the agitate cycle in your washing machine. I think agitating one another is actually the best way to translate this word because we're trying to agitate each other to love and good works. It's thinking about the people in our lives and not giving what they want to hear, but giving them what they need so they can succeed at not only enjoying God's grace, but extending that God's grace to the world. Uh, again, at the risk of telling a story that I'm in again, I, I, this is the best example I have. Back in 2008, when I'd been in Chapel Hill for about five years, one of the things I recognized about the small little college town I was in, it was extremely racially divided. I know Chapel Hill is a very progressive, liberal image, but still a southern city. And it has a southern city with huge civil rights roots, and that city was divided. And so I, because I was brown and not white or black, you get what I'm saying here? I wasn't African-American, I wasn't Caucasian, I was in between. At least that's the way I was perceived like that. It was like high school football again. I was the only guy friends with everybody on the team, <laughs> okay? So there's like three or four white evangelical guys I got to know, and you know, we were friends. And then there's the three African-American guys downtown that I got to know. And I suddenly realized, hey, I'm the only one that likes all of them. And they're the only ones that I'm, tr- I, gosh, I'm the only one they trust. And so one of the things that God put in my heart was, like, we got to find some way the seven of our churches can get together. So I thought and thought and thought. I said, I know we can refurbish houses of godly widows. But something about James says that's pure and holy religion. I got everyone on this one. So I went back to all my friends and said, hey, let's get together, white, black, and me, and we'll get together, and we're going <laughs> to refurbish houses together. And they're like, all right, let's do this. So we got the guys together, we formed teams and committees, and we found Miss Fogey, this godly woman. See, the, uh, Chapel Hill, this one neighborhood that was historically African-American, that was starting to get regentrified, the taxes were starting to go up, and there's all these godly widows, who or their houses were literally falling apart on them. Miss Fogey, her husband was a bivocational pastor who also uh, did drywalling. And he was a godly man that passed away. She was alone, her kids were in Richmond, Virginia, and so we had the opportunity to come around her and bless her and try to fix her house. Now, as it, as it started moving forward, I was like, you know, I'm not the guy to lead this. So I got one of the African-American pastors, one of the white pastors together to kind of lead this initiative and it started falling apart. The whole thing was falling apart. And so it was starting to fall back on me to kind of fix it and save it. And honestly, and this is what makes me look bad, I didn't want to do it. I started looking at all the responsibilities, how much time it was going to take to make this initiative work, and I started coming with every excuse in my heart where I shouldn't do it. And I was literally going to let all those years of work to get to this point go away. And three people got in my face, began to agitate me. As calm as could be, my wife just started causing me to reflection and agitating me to love and good works. I didn't like a thing she said to me that Saturday night when I thought I wasn't going to do any more. But she just calmly, intentionally just kept bringing stuff up. And I was provoked. I was stimulated and I was not happy. And I went to bed. And then that next week, on Monday, Eugene Farrar, who's the outgoing president of NAACP, he was actually as a 15-year-old in the civil rights movement. He did all those cool sit-ins and stuff like that. And he called me Brother Rue. He said, Brother Rue, we got to get breakfast. And then he worked me over for two hours, stirring me up. And I can't say he was totally calm and non-abrasive in his interactions with me. And then there was another African minister, and he did the exact same thing. And by the end of the week, I was like, I don't care what it costs, we're going to do this. 
And it was so much fun. I would dare say the seven of us churches, when we fixed Miss Fogey's house, and then they went on to do other churches' houses when I moved down here, was by far some of the best things we ever did in Chapel Hill. Long story. I'm sorry about that. Who's doing this for you? When you have opportunities for love and good deeds, to love extravagantly, when God's planted a seed in your heart to love and extend beauty and kindness in the world in specific ways, and when you're starting to shrink back, you're not sure how to really execute that, who do you have in your life that's agitating you, causing you to reflection, stirring you up into love and good works? And who are you doing this for? It's a corporate activity. Again, it's a one another command. It's a mutual activity. I know, right now you're sitting there like me going, I don't want to do this. This is very un-American. This is not very middle class. We don't do this. And this may be why we're missing out on living a beautiful, extravagant lives for the glory of Jesus. The third command, particular perpetual task here, is to encourage if you look at verse 25, it's to encourage one another. Perikaleo, it's to urge, it's to comfort, to exhort, to support. It's to really instill courage in someone. Think about all the common places we fail to love beautifully. Think about our marriages, our relationships with our children, our friends, our coworkers. There's times we just stall out, right? There's no shame in that. There's times we get into a jam with our marriage or with our kids or friends, and we know where we kind of want to go, but it's kind of scary or it's confusing or we got in a bad rut and we just kind of lose hope. And what we need in that time is not someone to necessarily agitate us, although sometimes people want to agitate us, but we need someone to instill courage in us, comfort us, propel us forward, help us to move forward in hope in those relationships where we're stalling out. Again, this is a mutual activity. Who's doing this for you and who are you doing this for? Are you in a place where you're regularly being encouraged and encouraging others when you stall out on the love God's put on your heart? Fourth, and this kind of starts encapsulating the other three, is we need to regularly meet. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet as, as is the habit of some. Now this is a general term. It's clearly more than worship. It's not less than worship. It's so much more. When you look at the practice of the New Testament church, especially when you read the book of Acts and you start looking at the various letters, it's clear that various churches had unique practices. But one thing that's clear is they didn't, they didn't look at church as what we're doing right now. They looked at church much more organically and relationally, where it's what we do in smaller groups together. And then they got around each other and they encouraged each other. And again, the author of Hebrews, man, he, he had something to say on the subject. Look what he said in verse 313. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Ouch. You know, this explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Some of us are right now sitting around going, I feel my heart's hardened. Maybe it's because I'm not being exhorted every day. But when you look about the implications versus scary, oh, wait. So if I'm not encouraging and being encouraged every day, my heart's going to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you have to put so clearly, author of Hebrews? But he's on to something. We need daily encouragement, not only from when we meet God in city Bible reading every morning, but from each other. If we're going to live extravagantly beautiful lives for the kingdom. And we can't do this for everyone. But again, we can do this for someone. So the question is, who are we doing this for? And who's doing this for us? 
Who do we have in our lives where there's regular encouragement, regular meeting, regular stirring up built into our lives? Now, it's interesting, like, uh, as uh, all the Hebrews are pressing into the church globally, he says, it's the habit of some to neglect us. Now, we have no idea who that habit of some is and why they're neglecting it. Who knows? It actually doesn't even matter. I'm glad he was vague. The real question is, why don't you and I regularly meet with others, right? And this is where it gets personal and a little touchy, but think about it. We're afraid of being let down. We're afraid of being known. So our fear and our approval issues, our control issues, our desire for certain images, our independence, our arrogance, man, it runs roughshod through our hearts and it prevents us from regularly meeting and benefiting from one another. And so we miss out on the beautiful love, both experiencing that love, but then also dishing it out. The fifth command particular thing here, the task that the author of Hebrews gives us, I think is where a lot of the enjoyment and the power comes from. But look at it, verse 23, uh, firmly grasp the gospel. Firmly grasp the gospel. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, let us hold fast is all one Greek word, katecho. It's to seize, it's to hold fast, it's to have a firm grip. I mean, if you looked at the call to worship that Ted did a fantastic job look at having us look at twice, is look what's available to us. We have free and unfettered access to our Heavenly Father. He enjoys us. He brings us close to Him. Because Jesus shed His blood for us once and for all, for all our sins, we have the same approval and access to our Heavenly Father that He does. And so He invites us to actually know Him and experience Him and enjoy His rich grace. And the author of Hebrews is saying, grip, get your grip on that. But he's not telling you, a bunch of individuals, to get your grip on that. He's saying we all together have to firmly grasp the gospel. If you look at the word phrase, we to, to hold fast to the confession of our hope, that simply basically means the basic truths of the gospel. You see, hope uh, vividly anticipates certain realities to come true. So don't miss, in the basic sense, what's being said here. We need each other to hold fast to the gospel. We need each other to be able to actually experience God in city Bible reading and not go through the motions of it. We need each other to stimulate each other and provoke each other, encourage each other, so that we can actually know how to meet Jesus and have him speak to us in the mornings. We need his help to rehearse the gospel. When we're forgetting the promises of God, just simple scripture memory is not enough. We need other believers in our lives where we're preaching the gospel to them and they're preaching the gospel to us. Uh, we have a Heavenly Father who wants to speak to us through His Word and Spirit. And we us Presbyterians get freaked out by that. And we don't know how to sit still and listen to God and have Him speak to us in some weird, mysterious way. And we're never going to learn that unless we do that together. And think about what we're doing here in worship. If we're not going to just go through the motions of worship, but actually enjoy Jesus and be able to feed on Jesus and get our hands around Jesus and hold on tight onto Him, we can't do that as individuals in this room together, but we need to do this as a community together as we walk through this together so we can feast on Jesus together. Again, we need help to actually hold fast to the gospel. Who's doing this for you and who are you doing this for? Again, you can't do this for everybody, but you can do this for somebody. If I could tie all five of these things together in one point of application, let me just say this. For New City, this is what's behind our heart for community groups. 
our goal for our community groups is we gather together to figure out how to see Jesus better together. We're in our community groups. We learn how to actually make use of public worship and feast on Jesus together. We learn to go into our group times and we learn how to do CBR, city Bible reading together where we prayer journal with God. And we learn how to do gospel community together where we help each other to see Jesus by displaying Jesus to each other. And we learn to get our lives around those rhythms that helps us in every way to feast on Jesus. Now, right now, as I say that, some of you are like, man, you've not been to my community group. There's, there's no way that's going to happen. Okay, I have a brand new community group. I really like everyone in my group. I really do. Y'all are awesome. And they're probably looking at me like, that's the goal of community group? <laughs> like, we're just like the worst group leader. And so, so, so right now, you're having all sorts of experiences. And I just want to just say, I want to validate all those experiences right now. Some of you are like, oh, I love my group. And some of you are like, ah, I got to get a new group. Okay. Whatever your experience, what's the key? How's that going to change? I would dare say from this text, uh, no matter how well I, Ted and I, and Damien strategize, we don't fix groups. You're actually the key to fixing your community group because all these commands are corporate commands. If you want your group to be a place where you're feasting on Jesus together, maybe you're the solution to making that group the way it ought to be. So if you're in a group and you're sensing right now God wants you to help your group to be better, go hang out with a couple that's leading your group. Go tell them you're in, and you're able to do anything they need to make this group succeed. If, if you're kind of like one of those people, like you're testing out your group, and you're realizing maybe this is where I need to land, what does it look like for you to double down and invest yourself a little bit more? If you really can't stand your group, and you know you need gospel community, you have to go to another group, I'm not going to blame you or stand any shame on you, but Damien will be happy to interact with you and find you another group. But if you're not in a group and you desperately want gospel community, please let us help you find one. Because we need you to experience the power of the gospel. Make sense? Now that we looked at the purpose of gospel community, I mean not gospel community, it's the purpose of interdependent community, the particulars of independent community, and let's now look at the power for independent community. I, look how this, I love how this passage ends. Uh, verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're encouraged to do all these one another in commands and to hold fast and do this stuff as we see this great day, capital D, drawing near. What is this day? On one level, it's, it's the day where Jesus makes everything right. It's the day where everyone has to give an account. It's the day of judgment. Now, depending on your Christian upbringing, you're thinking day of judgment, day of judgment, you know, some big movie screen where all your sins are going to be showcased. That's one way to look at it. But I actually think the author of Hebrews is thinking about this day another way. It's a day of glory. It's a day of love. It's a day of rest. It's a day where Jesus makes the world the way it ought to be. It's a day where we won't be able to sin anymore. It's a day where God's love will be made complete and perfect in us. It's a day where we'll really rest. Rest from the weariness of sinning and confessing and going to Jesus and having to live in gospel communion where you have to agitate each other. Because in that day, we won't have to agitate each other. Because Jesus is going to make us perfectly whole. And we're going to be able to fully rest in his love and his grace. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do is your finish line is coming. Your finish line awaits you. Live for that day. Because if you live for that day, it's going to fuel you to right now roll up your sleeves and live in beautiful, interdependent community. But how can we be assured that that day is coming? Look at verse 23. 
For he who promised is faithful. (laughs) We know this day is going to happen because Jesus showed the most marvelous, spectacular way it's going to happen because he died on the cross for our sins. He showed what he began in us, he is going to be sure to complete. The author of Hebrews nails this point over and over and over. In Hebrews 3, he says, we share in Christ. It's a very mysterious term. We already partake in Christ and feast in Christ. We're already in Jesus. In Hebrews 12, he talks about how we're sons and daughters of our heavenly father. And our God loves us so much, he even disciplines us because he wants us to be like Christ. But in Hebrews 9, he talks about the promise of how we have an inheritance. Going back to that finish line, that day that's coming. Jesus is going to give us his entire glorious inheritance. He's sharing every bit of it with us. He rules the world. He owns the world. He's going to make the world the way it ought to be. And then when we show up, he's like, it's all yours. Let's enjoy this together. This is the day we get to wait for. And to degree, we allow that day to captivate our imagination together. Today we, to the degree we encourage each other to live for that day, to the, day we, to the degree we agitate each other to enjoy that day and hold fast to that day with unwavering conviction firmly, is to the degree we're going to be freed up to thoroughly love one another. So there's breathtaking, beautiful, good deeds. They're just undeniable pouring out of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, None of us in this room have interdependent community to the degree you've called us to have it. We're thankful that there are pace setters in this room that you've been discipling and changing to give us a direction in this. But Lord, we will not have interdependent community to the degree that we would love unless you show up and enable us to do it. So we beg you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to empower us by your gospel, to by that day coming, to help us to love one another particularly encourage and exhort and hold fast to the gospel. Father, we're thankful that this is not a new subject to New City. We're thankful that you have been creating gospel community, interdependent community for years. We're thankful that there's pockets of this already happening in our church. And Father, we beg you that in the next year or so, you would make this a confounding, beautiful reality in our church. And we pray this in your blessed name. Amen.